0: I'm now going to take a step back and uh, delve into a subject that I was passionate about in the previous lifetime, but which has never really left me, and to which I am now probably about to return in my research as well, namely the Creole world, which in fact has changed probably quite a bit since I started uh, in the 1980s, but I'm coming back to that. So... In the Fraser Lecture of 1927, entitled The Diffusion of Culture, Marit severely and eloquently castigates Elliot Smith's diffusionism, and in particular, Elliot Smith's view that virtually everything significant in human history had originated in modern Egypt and spread from there. Towards the end of the lecture, Marit remarks that Eliot Smith's Quote, common sense is outraged by the postulate that the same invention could be made twice over, Although Marrott was no stranger to the documented facts of cultural diffusion, he saw no reason to assume um, that similar cultural phenomena necessarily had common origins. Marrott's Fraser lecture can scarcely be counted among his major works, but his arguments against hyperdiffusionism are perfectly sound. Regarded as a school in social anthropology, diffusionism had already fallen out of favour at the time of Marit's lecture, certainly in the anglophone world. And it was about to be completely eclipsed by Boas's historical particularism, Malinowski's functionalism and Radcliffe Brown's brand of Durkheimian holism. Yet nobody would deny, then or later, that cultural diffusion, or rather the spread and transformation of ideas, practices, crafts, and worldviews beyond their initial confines takes place continuously. Not least in the current era of global instantaneous information technology, meaningful or meaningless symbols travel in ungovernable and often unpredictable ways. So recently... Diffusion has been explored not least in research on globalisation, where, to paraphrase George Marcus, it seems as if everything is everywhere, yet everywhere is different and unique. And and also in the kind of metaphorical neo-Darwinism known as memetics, which had its brief moment of glory around the turn of the millennium. I will not waste your time or mine repeating the old arguments against diffusionism here, but... Let's keep in mind that although hyperdiffusionism was absurd, as correctly pointed out by Merritt, mainstream diffusionism was marred by clunky methodology and an inadequate understanding of cultural worlds. And memetics may possibly have been a nice idea, but an unproductive one and a misleading one. There is, of course, no reason that we should not study cultural flows. We just have to do it properly. Cultural worlds, as critics of mimetics have reminded us, cannot be chopped up into constituent parts without losing their characters. But neither are they whole and indivisible, whereas social identities tend to be bounded and discontinuous, at least in theory. Either you're a member of the group or you're not a member of the group. Cultural meaning can often flow across social boundaries, sometimes in frictionless and straightforward ways, sometimes scarcely at all. While, as Marriott points out in his Fraser lecture from 1927, one may reasonably doubt whether, quote, sculptured elephants are likely to be found in the land of tapis and macaws, unquote. Unlikely flows of cultural elements have been known to occur throughout history, but often without accompanying changes in the social organisation they have generally been absorbed into pre-existing cultural and social universes without wide-ranging consequences. For example, from my part of the world, I, I was just told by a student of mine that Sami shawls, the kind of shawls that Sami women in the far north of Scandinavia use, now tend to be adorned with peacocks and minarets, since many Sami now buy the silk cloth in immigrant shops in eastern Oslo. A fun fact, perhaps, but this observation has little relevance for an analysis of Sámi life worlds, except that it shows that not all changes are marked uh, reflexively, and not all differences are of the kind that make a difference. One characteristic of cultural flows, underestimated by the diffusionists, but widely recognised today, is the dual process of mixing and innovation. Since Marit's time, social and cultural anthropology has developed a rather large vocabulary for talking about mixing. Shedding old concepts as new ones have been brought into existence and sometimes into fashion. Although it has been objected that concepts describing mixing seem to presuppose a pre-existing, pristine state of stable, bounded cultures, it obviously makes sense to speak of flows and mixing, notwithstanding the many pitfalls Speed, scope and consequences are among the factors that need to be taken into account if we want to look at uh, these phenomena. Cultural flows and mixing with no perceptible impact or relevance for social life are by and large seen by social anthropologists as mere icing on the cake. Now the mixed cultures par excellence in the anthropological canon are those of the Caribbean and their close cousins in the Indian Ocean. For years, they were held in low esteem by anthropologists. They were created by miscegenation and contamination. They had evolved under the bright floodlights of modernity. Indeed, they had contributed to producing those very floodlights and were deemed mundane and unexciting under the gaze of anthropology. In the heyday of the post-colonial and post-modern period, say from the, roughly from the publication of Orientalism, 1978, until the dust had finally started to settle after the publication of Writing Culture, which came out in 1986, the Caribbean was briefly accorded a place in the sun, offering, as it did, a kind of cultural configuration that suited the new sensibilities well. But the Caribbean was also a key site for the development of a global historical anthropology, given its enormously important role in the growth and making of the modern world as we know it. Just to mention one prominent example, the late Sidney Mintz's research in all the three major language areas, the Spanish, the English and the French, is well known, not least for Mintz's insistence that what defined Creole societies or creolism was not cultural mixing as such, but the fundamental changes in social organisation resulting from uprootedness and displacement from subsistence communities to plantation societies. Minster's book with Richard Price, called The Birth of Afro-American Culture, from 1992, argued against the previously commonly held view, defended by no lesser figure than Melville Herskovitz that African retentions or perhaps survivals, a term from Victorian anthropology with which merit would doubtless have been familiar. African recensions delineated and to no small extent defined Caribbean culture. and Price emphasised invention and creativity, resulting from the admittedly enforced confluences of diverse sources, highlighting the newness of Creole culture and society. Building on the comparative historical anthropology from Wolf and Mintz, but enriching it with critical discourse analysis and a post-colonial approach, Rolf Trouillard soon added new layers to the already vibrant discourse on power, cultural creativity and mixing with the Caribbean as a focal point. Trouillard, as many of you would know, mainly wrote about Haiti. And there were others. From having been a poor man's alternative to fieldwork in a truly exotic location, the region was suddenly fashionable. Even Ulf Hannes, the well-known Swedish anthropologist, did a stint of fieldwork in the Caribbean, publishing his findings in Caymanian Politics, obscurely published in 1974. But I believe available from the Department of Social Anthropology at the University of Stockholm, should anyone be interested. (laughs) I've got a copy myself, and it's perfectly readable and and a good read. Um, There was something about the Caribbean towards the end of the 20th century that seemed to encapsulate, condense and highlight central features of a globalising world providing fruitful templates for thinking about flows, boundaries power, individualism and cultural creativity anywhere in the world and not just in the Caribbean The Caribbean and Creole societies in general have more recently faded away from the attention of mainstream anthropology Yet I'm going to argue that at this particular juncture in history both the interdisciplinary one and the history unfolding out there it may be worthwhile to revisit the Creole societies as indeed uh, Robin Cohen and Olivia Sheringham have recently done in their brand new book um, on um, on living together with difference. There are several reasons for this, several reasons why we could take another look at uh, at the Caribbean and the Creole societies with the hindsight of the early 21st century. One is plainly moral and political. At a time when divisive identity politics threatens people's autonomy and well-being across the planet, an ontology, if I may use that word, of social being, which does not privilege boundaries and origins, over-connectedness and impurity, is deserving of sustained and systematic attention. But there are also interesting parallels in Creole discourses about cultural identity and at least two major debates in anthropological theory. One is to do with the destabilisation of boundaries. As late as 1969, the late Frédéric Warth could assume that ethnic boundaries remained intact, although there was a continuous flow of persons and things across them. In more recent years, the boundary as such has increasingly been interrogated. In cultural studies, through the concept of hybridity. In anthropology, through studies of cultural creolization with, with the introduction, or rather the usage of the frontier as an alternative to the boundary. And most recently, in Sarah Green's challenging notion of cross locations. Which shows in a graphic way how any place can form part of several entities. The Creole social category is by definition delineated by fuzzy and very porous boundaries. The second, perhaps even larger theoretical debate that may usefully be approached through the Creole world uh, concerns the relationship between difference and inequality. A rough division within the discipline has often been drawn between culturalist and sociological approaches. In some accounts... This mirrors the difference between an American cultural anthropology building on German Geisteswissenschaften and hermeneutics through Franz Boas and his first cohort of students, on the one hand, and European social anthropology, which was indebted to comparative law and the sociology of Durkheim and his students, on the other hand. Now, of course, while numerous permutations, exceptions... Hybridities and creolizations, complexities and later developments are natural too considerable for such a crude division to be taken at face value. It is not entirely without its merit. And contemporary controversies over ontology, reverse-engineered anthropology and radical difference, the possibilities of comparison and anthropologies of global change may well be seen uh, in a sharper light if viewed through this prism, at least if it's not the only tool you have. Sometimes the contrast between difference and inequality is explored as an empirical subject in its own right. Um, in research on ethnic and cultural diversity in complex societies, anthropologists have tended on the whole to emphasise difference, while sociologists on the whole have tended to speak about inequality. A classic statement which several of the people present would would remember, in fact at least one of them contributed to the same book, um, was Badr Daya's uh, study of Pakistanis in Birmingham, based on fieldwork in the late 1960s. From 1974. One of his arguments at the time was that um, what may appear to be class inequality may equally well be seen as cultural difference. The Pakistani immigrants in his study, had a poorer housing standard than the comparable Englishmen, native Englishmen. But he argued that they were not more disadvantaged necessarily, but had different economic priorities, owing to variations in social relations and cultural values. Instead of spending a large proportion of their income on housing, they sent remittances to family members overseas and supported community organisations. Seen through the categories of the welfare state or a class-based analysis, the Pakistanis were decidedly disadvantaged. Seen through a methodology of cultural relativism, they were acting on an alternative set of cultural values and social priorities. But I have to move on, because this is going to be about the Creole world, the Creole world and the way in which it can contribute to the ongoing debates about boundaries and about the inequality difference nexus in contemporary anthropology. I'm also going to argue that some of the challenges facing Creoledom currently have shifted in the last couple of decades from the conventional post-colonial dilemmas to issues framed by global neoliberalism. And my empirical focus will eventually be on the politics of Creole identity and language in the Seychelles, perhaps the most isolated of the Creole societies. But it's necessary first to look at the concepts of Creole and Creolisation, because, as you know, I mean, these words are notoriously slippery and fuzzy in their connotations. And it doesn't help that they are being used locally or, uh, or emically from Martinique to Mauritius in ways which partly overlap with, partly contradict academic usage. It's a lot of variation. What is a Creole? If you do a Google search on that question, I mean, you get all sorts of answers. And people think that there is an answer. That there is a final answer to what is a Creole and what is Creole. So let's have a look. In linguistics, creolisation is typically related to pigeonisation. Pigeons, according to Derek Pickerton, are generally spoken about three times more slowly than creoles. They have a limited and changing vocabulary, unstable vocabulary, um, a rudimentary grammar, and they do not threaten parent languages or unrelated languages also used by the speakers. They do not drive other languages to extinction. Creoles, by contrast, are just as structured and complex as other human languages and become mother tongues, eventually replacing the parent languages, at least partly. Since the development of Creole languages can be traced historically with some degree of accuracy, Bickerton has argued that their surprising resemblances across the world may help in developing (coughs) general theories of language and their evolution. The relationship of Creoles to pigeons... Is complicated. While it has traditionally been assumed that some pigeons may evolve or develop into creoles, you know, from a very simple basic to something more structured and complex, this view is increasingly under attack. Notably, the linguist Salikoko Mukwener uh, argues in several publications that pigeons generally do not develop into fully fledged complex languages, but remain rudimentary trading idioms, typically in port cities. Creoles, by contrast, typically develop in plantation societies with ethnically and linguistically complex populations, which are nevertheless stable over se- several generations. Yes, I know there are exceptions. I mean, Creole uh, in West Africa is a Creole language, likely to have begun as a pigeon trading idiom, as is Tok Pisin, the national language of Papua New Guinea. As also pointed out by Bickerton, pigeons are usually spoken by adults, while Creoles seem to be created generally by children during play and informal interaction. Although there is general agreement among linguists regarding the criteria for inclusion into the category of Creole languages, the concept of linguistic realization raises several difficult questions that I shall not go into detail here, but I'll mention some of them. Does a Creole language ever cease to be a Creole language? And if so, when? It could be argued that English... Modern English emerged as a Creole language, resulting mainly from the encounter between Norman French and Anglo-Saxon, but nobody would regard it as a Creole language today, I believe. Moreover, de-Creolisation can take two main forms. Gravitation towards a metropolitan standard, such as English or French, or standardisation through mass media, education, dictionaries, etc., whereby the fluidity and receptiveness and openness of the Creole language ceases and the Creolisation process is in effect halted as the language is frozen through dictionaries, textbooks, etc. A typical outcome of decreolisation of the first kind, it starts to approach the metropolitan language, is the emergence of a post-Creole continuum of the kind that can be witnessed in Trinidad where a range of varieties exist, usually correlated with class hierarchies. You know, I mean, the closer... In a pigmentocracy, um, which is also hierarchical society, the closer your creole is to the standard, as it were, English or French, uh, the likelier it is that you are light-skinned and middle-class. In anthropology... Uh, the pigeonization of culture is not a term that has ever caught on, but cultural creolization is being used, following Ulf Hannes' suggestion in his 1987 article, The World in Creolization, often in a loose and evocative way to designate mixing resulting from the confluence of discrete strains leading to qualitatively new cultural forms. Now, Ulf Hannes was, not, was and is notoriously uninterested in the purity of the isolated tribe, he was attracted to, quote, the cultures on display in marketplaces, shanty towns, beer halls, nightclubs, missionary bookstores, railway waiting rooms, boarding schools, newspapers and television stations. The use of the creolization analogy in anthropology nevertheless leads to the same conceptual difficulties as in linguistics, as well as raising even more complicated questions regarding the possibility to describe cultural worlds. If culture is never stable or homogeneous, this argument goes, then everything creolises and the concept is worthless. To this view, we may retort that not everything flows, mixes and leads to innovation and certainly not at the same speed or with the same consequences. Be this as it may, cultural creolization as a concept must be seen as a matter of degree uh, if it is to be used as a comparative concept as advocated by Hannes. He speaks, for example, in one of his articles about Stockholm as a city which is being doubly creolised through immigration and through globalisation, which is a fairly, uh, you might say, a fairly bold way of trying to move a concept from its original context to an entirely different place. With creole societies, similar issues may arise. Just as the social category of the creole has porous and negotiable boundaries, the category of the creole society cannot be delineated unequivocally confirming, in fact, Nietzsche's conviction that only concepts with no history can be defined accurately. It's a good, it's a good soundbite. I mean, Nietzsche was rather good with these things. <laughs> Perhaps we can do no better than invoke Wittgenstein's notion of family resemblances. I mean, as noted by Virginia Dominguez in her historical study of Creole society in Louisiana, the term Creole acquired diverse meanings, as she says, over the years, as it did elsewhere. However there is a case for re- retaining a concept along the lines of the Black Atlantic as envisioned by Paul Gilroy. And I would add the Black Indian Ocean. Okay. So, notwithstanding the extension of the term created society, to include ethically complex cities in Indonesia, Pacific Islands super-diverse cities in Europe and urban culture in the Solomon Islands, the semantic core of the concept of the Creole society is arguably to be found in post-slavery societies, from Louisiana to Brazil, from Curaçao to Mauritius. Nigel Bolland states simply that the term Creole, referring to peoples and cultures, means something or somebody derived from the old world but developed in the new. But it needs to be narrowed further in order to be genuinely useful. I think a crucial aspect in the emergence of Creole societies in this more narrow sense uh, is the loss of the original political and social organisation and the need to reinvent even some of the most basic social relations owing to enforced displacement, brutal oppression and social fragmentation. By this token, ironically, the first peoples designated as Creoles or Criollos failed to meet the requirements namely Europeans, born in Nueva España, right? about whom the term was used as early as the mid-16th century. So as I said, it's a slippery term, okay? Um, moreover, as noted by Stéphane Palmier, criollo does not today denote mixing or displacement, but something very different, namely local identity, as in comida criolla, local style cooking. And as noted by Charles Stewart, echoing Nietzsche's insight, the term criollo Quote, the term Creole has itself creolized, which is what happens to all productive words with long histories, quote. A Creole society, in my understanding, is based wholly or partly on the mass displacement of people who were usually involuntarily uprooted from their original home. Shedding the main features of the social and political organization on the way, brought into sustained contact with people from other linguistic and cultural areas, and obliged to develop in creative and improvisational ways, new social and cultural forms in the new land, drawing simultaneously on traditions from their respective places of origin and on impulses resulting from the encounter and the permutations. These creative societies share important historical features syncretic religion was often developed as well as Creole languages genealogies tend to be cognatic and shallow and most importantly, as I've already said a couple of times, society had to be reconstructed from scratch so the descendants of Indian indentured labourers in such societies and Trindad and Mauritius were not Creoles on on these criteria and significantly did not develop Creole languages but instead became bilingual in ...admittantly somewhat Creolised forms of Bhojpuri uh, ...the Hindi dialect spoken in Bihar and Eastern Uttar Pradesh... Uh, ...and the local French or English-speaking Creole. Although they were uprooted and displaced... ...Indian migrants could arrive as couples or even families... ...and were able to reconstruct Indian villages in the new land. Reproducing the systems of kinship and inheritance... ...religious practices and value systems far from unchanged yet representing a continuity that was unavailable to the slaves and their descendants. they were The slaves were thrusted to modernity before virtually anyone else, beginning just after the conquest and soon developing into a large-scale business in the next centuries, producing newness not by choice but by necessity, becoming individuals in the demonian sense on the proto-factory that was the plantation. So key concepts for any examination of Creole society are accordingly displacement and invention. Indeed, the word Criollo signified newness right from the beginning, referring as it did to a Portuguese born in the Cape Verde Islands, incidentally the first major hub for the transatlantic slave trade, and in fact the first, in fact, the, the tropical European colony at all. Um, Later extended, the term was later extended, the term creolo, later extended to include any European born in a new world and thus liberated or alienated from the thick webs of kinship and tradition. The miracle of Creolization, to use Richard Price's expression, consists in the extraordinary cultural creativity, ranging from music and language to religion and food which almost inexplicably inexplicably grew out of a centuries-long history of unspeakable suffering and oppression. Every Creole society has its culinary specialties with multiple origins, often European, African and Asian, and sometimes something else in, in addition. Every Creole society has its version of the blues, a musical genre giving a poetic form to longing and deprivation. And every Creole society has its local discourse over identity, The past versus the future, openness versus closure. The Creole social identity, as you will have realised by now, if you didn't know it already, (laughs) is typically slippery and flexible. In Mauritius, the census category of general population, or population générale, was in its time defined as including, quote, every person who does not agree from his way of life to belong... Sorry. Every person who does not appear from his way of life to belong to one or other of those three communities. Unquote. That is, those three communities are the Hindus, Muslims and the Chinese. In other words, anybody who is not Hindu, Muslim or Chinese is Creole or general population. Apart from the small white Franco Mauritian minority, these people are, tend to be considered Creoles. While in Trinidad, anyone who does not identify and is being identified by others as Indian can be considered a Creole. Mauritians with mixed Indian origins can, depending on their way of life, see themselves and be seen by others as being Creoles. If they have a North Indian and a South Indian parent, for example, a Tamil and a North Indian parent, they're mixed in such a way, and if they do not belong to a Hindu uh, congregation, they may in fact see themselves as being seen by others as Creoles. I mean, as Mauritians sometimes say to me when I come there, I mean, lots of Creoles these days look like Indians. Right? So it is an open-ended, residual... It's an open identity, a residual category. Difficult to fit into models of plural societies of a previous generation of, of anthropology and sociology. Although this has been tried by governments and scholars to fit them into. These people are Indian, these people are Chinese, these are Creoles, But they don't really fit because they're not bounded, they're fluid, they leak in all directions. But it has been tried with limited success in places like Mauritius to fit them into models of plural societies. So Creolium is sprawling and internally diverse, but owing to the shared history, and in most cases comparable contemporary situations of political and economic vulnerability, um, owing to small scale and a particular kind of history, some broad societal themes recur and rever- reverberate throughout the Creole world, you might say, from from Jamaica to the Seychelles, and beyond. One is the relationship to Africa and the African heritage. Just as the question of the African substratum has been vigorously discussed among linguists writing about Creole languages, which have been sometimes described as idioms with a European vocabulary and an African grammar. I mean an unspecified as if African grammar, which is part of the problem here, <laughs> because they came from very different African societies with very different grammars. But never mind that. So is the question of African roots an issue which is persistently being addressed by Creole intellectuals, with a bearing on the discussions about both inequality and difference to which I'm going to, uh, I'm going to return. Um, now the African, Africanness celebrated. By the uniquely, that uniquely Creole religious movement and popular movement, Rastafarianism, and romanticized by an earlier generation of Francophone Creole intellectuals, namely the founders of the Negritude movement, which appeared, which was developed in France in the 1930s. The more uh, African, uh, so they romanticized Africa, Rastafarians, Negritude intellectuals. They they, they strongly emphasised the positive aspects of being uh, of African origin. The more recent Creolite movement, Creolity movement, with its point of gravity in Martinique, originating in Edouard Glissant's work, and developed further by Jean-Bernabé, Raphael Confiant and Patrick Chamoisot, two of them uh, novelists and sort of fully assorted intellectuals, and the third um, mostly an academic in their programmatic Eloge de la Créolité* from 1989, Africa is almost gone. It's almost totally obliterated in the Créolité movement. Whereas Sangor, gaur Césaire, and the other Negritude spokesmen invoked radical cultural difference. L'émotion est negre comme la raison est hélène, as Sangor wrote in 1939. Um, emotion is negro, just as reason is Greek and Marcus Garvey advocated a return to Africa and Rastaman mythologised Ethiopia while regarding white culture as the heart of Babylon the authors of Eloge de la Créolité* emphasised the present, not the past enrichment rather than oppression creativity instead of dependency so if Negritude is an ideology of cultural difference and Rastafarianism a movement representing and celebrating uniqueness while condemning historical oppression Creolité is surprisingly free of the hierarchies of colour and class, instead emphasizing newness, mixing, and openness as universal human virtues. In the eyes of its critics, this makes it politically toothless because it doesn't address inequality. A cultural product, along the lines of the united colours of Benetton, as Richard and Sally Price, I mean they, they're quoting someone else, okay, it's not necessarily their view. But I think they're quite they're slightly sympathetic for that view. And they're quoting Someone else. While its defenders would argue that Creolité is a way forward beyond post-colonial inferiority complexes, victimhood and mental colonization. The Creolité movement, with its emphasis on newness and creation, has a cheerful and worryless air about it, which stands in stark contrast to the post-colonial dilemmas to which it must be related, not least with reference to the legacy of France Fanon and the contemporary theorists like Paul Gilroy. But Créolité also represents a rupture with the past, a presentism and a post-racial egalitarianism which was bound when it was launched in the late 1980s and early 90s to resonate with cosmopolitan sensibilities elsewhere. After all, this was the era of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the era of the coming of the internet and mobile phones and the end of apartheid and of migration and multiculturalism. So Creolité somehow sat really well with these uh, and it fitted well with these tendencies at the time. There seemed to be no identity politics relying on boundaries in Creolité, no missionary religion of conversion and blind adher- adherence, no single recipe for living in the world of the creolisto Negritude, for its part, did not glorify the mirac- miraculously spicy and tasty Kalaloo, uh, that's a Trinidadian stew, okay, which has a bit of everything in it. Um, did Negritude did not glorify the miraculously spicy and tasty Kalaloo resulting from the confluence of Asian, European and African impulses, but instead emphasised African origins and a history of oppression from which one had to liberate oneself concerned in the spirit of cultural relativism as well, to value different cultures equally. So, I've now spoken for a little while, so it's now time to confront this general discussion of creodom and its dilemmas with a little bit of ethnography. And I will do so by taking a look um, at the politics and poetics of language, uh, culture and identity in the Seychelles. Um, and while also suggesting what, that there may be some interesting connections between the debates going on around culture, identity, inequality and difference in the Creole world with contemporary debates in, in anthropology. And as I as already signalled, I'm also going to argue that although the main dilemmas of post-slavery societies are endemic and enduring, they take on a different form in the early 21st century than they did when the ideologies and movements that we associate with Negritude, Rastafarianism, and even creolité were formulated at different times in the last century. So there is a 21st century take on the challenges of the Creole societies. Okay, so one of the least, studies, one of the least studied societies in the Creole world is the Seychelles Archipelago of the East African coast. They were uninhabited when they were first colonized by the French in the mid-18th century – And they became part of the British Empire after the Napoleonic Wars, governed together with a much larger colony of Mauritius to the south. These islands were either too hilly, too rocky or too sandy for large-scale plantation agriculture. And so the Seychelles remained an economically unimportant and somewhat neglected part of the empire contributing small quantities of copra vanilla cinnamon sugar and other produce but mainly hanging on through their main port conveniently located between europe arabia and no sorry arabia east african india europe is on the other side <laughs> arabia east african india so, a potted history of uh, independent Seychelles, which has a bearing, as I say, on dif- the difference in equality uh, debate, Which in fact, which is somehow embodied in the two major political figures. Because this is a small place, and there are only so many people who, um, who feel up to being politicians. And they, uh, as a consequence, they, they stay around for a long time. <laughs> They're still with us, both of them. So at Independence in 1976, James Manka became the first president. But after just a year, he was ousted in a coup staged by his own prime minister, Albert René. The iconic figures of Seychellois politics, even today, the two represented different approaches to economic development as well as to cultural identity. René, a socialist, advocated nationalisation, censorship of the press, and pride in the African heritage and the contemporary Creole identity. Mancombe, for his part, was keen to retain strong ties with Britain, to develop tourism and to integrate the Seychelles in the global leisure economy. He was far less interested than René in dealing with the legacy of slavery. After 15 years as a single-party society, Seychelles introduced a multi-party system in 1992. Mancombe returned from his exile, and younger opposition politicians have emerged. But the ruling Socialist Party has won every election, but increasingly narrowly. And in fact, there was a minor scandal around the last election because there were allegations of rigging and bribing and things, and the, and the victory was incredibly, incredibly, almost incredibly narrow. Anyway, since 2004, uh, René's long-term associate and former vice, uh, vice president, James Michel, has been president. The two leading lights of post-independence Seychellois politics represent approaches to inequality and difference which are interesting from the perspective of Creole studies. Whereas Mankham sees the Seychelles as a small but ideally fully integrated node in a global network of investments and mobility, René sees it as a node in an international socialist movement. In Mankham's case, the difference that makes a difference for the Seychelles lies in the scenery and climate seen from the metropolitan tourist gaze, Whereas René emphasised language and history as factors necessitating a local adaptation of socialism, which was nevertheless, at the end of the day, just as universalist as libertarian capitalism, only in a different way. Whereas René saw a strong state-led, locally based economy as the solution to inequality, Mankham assumed that Seychellois would on the whole be better off if they received large-scale international uh, investments. Unlike his adversary, René took a negative view of tourism, although it was a major earner of foreign currency, even in his time. Warning against the kind of colonial dependency typically reproduced in tropical tourism, René expressed the ambition to keep the Seychelles for the Seychellois. I mean, uh, yeah, he said that, but I mean, uh, they were in a different situation than Hungary uh, today, Okay, So um, he could say it credibly and stay and remain popular also internationally. Um, OK, uh, and now, uh, although I have to leave these fascinating figures from Seychellois public life for now, but I'm going to return to the issues raised by the contrast between them. Um, and I think I should nevertheless mention that the African legacy remains a theme in Seychellois politics. Only last year, in a much-quoted soundbite, Mankam, who is no longer active in politics, but is still very much a public figure... Mancombe stated that we must aim to get to Monaco, not Bamako. (laughs) Right? Um, As argued by by Mintz, um, creolisation has to be understood mainly as a result of social and economic processes, with cultural and linguistic creolisation following as a result. Most of the ancestors of today's Seychellois were uprooted African slaves from different parts of Africa, Their kinship systems and political structures, modes of subsistence and family organisation were lost, resulting, like elsewhere in the Creole world, in an urgent need for social and cultural creativity. So a French lexicon, Creole language, emerged already in the 18th century. Its proximity to Mauritian Creole testifying to the close ties between the colonies. Following abolition in the mid-19th century, around 1840... Cognatic kinship became the norm, with matrifocal households echoing the Guyanese families described already in 1956 by R.T. Smith as being fairly widespread in another post-slavery society, Guyana. Matrifocality. Like in other Creole societies, there is more than a hint of pigmentocratic rule. For example, the terms "Mozambique par comprend" or "noir pas comprend," meaning uh, "stupid" or "uncivilized," "Mozambican" or "stupid" or "uncivilized black," is, is commonly and often unthinkingly used in colloquial Céchelois uh, Creole. "Mozambique par comprend" literally means uh, "Mozambican doesn't understand." Um, along with fishing. Plantation agriculture on a modest scale was the main economic activity for most of the 20th century. However, by the early 21st century, this is all but gone. In a neoliberal world of deregulated markets and decreased costs of transportation, the small scale of Seychellois agriculture could not compete. So today, one of the old sugar estates on the main island of Mahé has been turned into a tourist-focused rum distillery with a posh restaurant and the largest coconut plantation, on nearby Ladigue has been converted into an outdoor museum. Fish and some produce is served in outdoor markets, of which one in Victoria, the capital, is the largest. But nearly everything on offer in the shops has been imported. Nearly everything you get in the shops has been imported, down to the apples and onions from South Africa. And I mean, I once commented to a friend, I mean, when I was in the Seychelles recently, that they have a spa supermarket, OK, where you get apples and onions, but you don't get mangoes. You don't get bananas. Which I grow in the social I said, "Look, I have a spa supermarket near my house in Oslo. We get mangoes and bananas there. So there is something here. There, there's, uh, you see, the scale, and uh, and the, the the form in which the new forms in which dependency takes in uh, in 20th century, twenty first century, deregulated uh, global capitalism. <coughs> Notwithstanding, um, Albert René's disdain for the more glaring forms of ne- neocolonial dependence." As many of you are surely aware, upmarket tourism has grown steadily since the 1980s. And along with processed fish, mainly tuna, income derived from the foreign-owned hotels and tour operators remain the main source of revenue. I wrote this before the revelation of the Panama Papers. So uh, maybe I'll have to revise it, OK, um, when I look more closely into what's been going on there. After 40 years of independence with the socialist Parti Le Pep, The People's Party, still in power, the Seychelles present an intriguing mixture of state socialism, globalised capitalism, with more than a hint of offshore banking. Yeah, I got it there. (laughs) So I I was dimly aware of it even then. Um, Luxury resorts and bureaucratic red tape, with a social and cultural substratum of Creole informality. In other words, the contemporary Seychelles is a creole society subjected to multiple pressures and sometimes contradictory influences. In the last decades, it's increasingly been incorporated into systems of higher scale, creating forms of dependence somewhat different from those which the revolutionary period of the late 1970s and 80s sought to do something about. Intensified contact with the outside world through electronic networks and increased mobility, internet and cable television are widespread, and in 2015 half the Seychellois population made at least one trip abroad, right? 50% made at least one trip abroad, so they're quite well off by, by regional standards, has led to a pressure on local practices, customs and notions, which in practice may be stronger. This pressure may in practice be stronger and more difficult to resist than anything experienced even during colonialism. Now the physical boundaries of the Seychelles are not contested. Nearly all Seychellois live on three islands, which are well connected by ferry and light aircraft. And they have a shared collective identity as Seychellois, notwithstanding the persistence or hierarchies of race and class. Unlike the case in societies like Trinidad and Mauritius where I have been working before. The Seychelles are relatively homogeneous in terms of collective identification, the vast majority being of African or mixed African-European origin. Interestingly, the small Chinese minority are considered Creoles and intermarry to some extent with other Seychellois, whereas the slightly larger Indian minority do not, and they are therefore also not generally considered Creoles or even always as fully Seychellois. Territorial and ethnic boundaries thus do not present Very large-scale problems relating to social cohesion, unlike in the classic sort of plural societies. At the same time, questions to do with identity are at the forefront of public discourse. The acceleration of communication, trade and mobility, characteristic of the early 21st century, has simultaneously strengthened the transnational connectedness of the Séchelois and their sense of isolation and marginality. During the first decade or so of independence, we're now talking about the late 1970s and 1980s. Self-determination was high on the agenda. Although ties with the other socialist countries were strong, the official narrative linking tiny Seychelles to the great forces of universal history, so was the emphasis on the local and the glorification of the common people. Unlike in the other French lexicon, Creole-speaking territories, Seychelles made Seychellois Creole, Creole Seychellois, into a national language admittedly, along with English and French. By 2016, the position of Creole has been weakened. American popular music has all but eclipsed the traditional Mutia music, the blues of the Seychelles, and even Jamaican reggae in popularity. Post-colonial fanonism important in the socialist 1980s, has faded from view. And there is a marked preference for imported commodities rather than locally produced goods such as fruit wine and traditional dishes like katkat kat banan, which is a dish made based on saltfish and plantains. On the equality-inequality scale, Seychelles is shaped by patronage associated with a party, foreign investments which leave uneven benefits and, to a certain extent, the inherited hierarchies of privilege and property, although these leads are far less marked than, for example, in Mauritius, which has a distinct powerful white upper class. Concerning the different similarity scale, a Seychellois intellectual said during a conversation aware that she was paraphrasing the Kenyan author Ngugi Wathiongo that the socialists in the 1980s and so on had been successful in nationalising much of the land and they had successfully decolonized central institutions and built a welfare state but they had failed in their attempt to decolonize the mind it's one of Ngugi's best books I mean a collection of essays called Decolonizing the Mind which addresses exactly this question In her view, they were like V.S. Naipaul's mimic men and women, who would rather be somewhere else or, if possible, someone else. Most Seychellois she adds wanted to be global citizens, not descendants of Africans reproducing a mongrel, impure and imperfect culture developed in a miserable past that they would prefer to forget, and the relative prosperity and high level of connectedness in the Seychelles makes this option feasible in practice. In other words, old inequalities are being superseded by new ones. Although the old class structure was also transnational, while the new one is transnational in new ways. And any quest for local uniqueness and rootedness is superseded by consumer dreams and a desire to take part fully in the kind of global modernity seen in the tourist areas and on television. This configuration differs from those debated among creolists and others in the last century, Although the double consciousness, as, uh, as, uh, to use Gilroy's term, is still evident, it is no longer the former colonial powers that serve as magnets and yardsticks, but the leisure and consumption-intensive worlds of tourism and cyberspace. This is a setting in which structural amnesia of a peculiar kind sets in, when your identity is defined through consumption rather than production and ties to the production regimes of the previous generation have have been severed. Producing a credible historical narrative, shedding light on and making the present day meaningful, does not only become problematic, as in so many cases of creative appropriations of the past studied by anthropologists, but it becomes irrelevant. So now you realise why, why I've been emphasising Sid Mintz's uh, approach to creative societies as a form of social organisation and a form of economic organisation. When that kind of history is no longer alive and it has been forgotten and there are very few ties connecting your life to that history, it becomes difficult to create a credible narrative about where you're coming from. The past becomes a scarce resource for some, worthless rubbish for others. As can easily be seen... Some elements of the creolist discourse are easily compatible with this worldview. This collective amnesia liberates people from the burdens of an African past of which they are ashamed, and a history of oppression which they'd rather forget. But it also simultaneously prevents them from understanding the causes of the present ailments, limiting the extent of self-knowledge. As O'Brien famously says to Winston Smith in 1984, ''He who controls the past controls the present.'' Right. So, okay, to sum up uh, so far, I have a section left, so I hope (laughs) hope you're not in a hurry yet. I I have just one more thing that I want to say, and it's going to take a few minutes. So to sum up so far, the post-slavery population of the Seychelles has experienced three distinct waves of attempted standardisation, obliteration of uh, difference, as it were. Not of inequality, but of difference. The colonial, the socialist, and now that of global communication society. Language is the key to an understanding of the multiple dilemmas of Creole identities in the 21st century. And I shall therefore, towards the end, give you a glimpse of the discourse on language and identity in the Seychelles, which I think can be used to unpack both the debates about inequality and uh, equality and those of difference and uh, similarity. At least let me give it, me give it a try. This course is about language and the status of the Creole languages in this trilingual community of uh, Creole, French and English speakers. The International Creole Institute in the Seychelles, l'Institut Creole International, is located to a beautiful old colonial mansion across the road from a beach frequented by fishermen and the occasional tourist. Founded as the Creole Institute in 1989, the change of name in 2014 signals an ambition to become a hub for the French-speaking Creole Islands and territories. The Institute carries out research on the language, publishes translations of literary works such as Beckett's On attendant Godot and Orwell's Animal Farm, they produce grammars and children's books, and they organise cultural events, contributing to the annual Creole Festival in October and they aim, in general, to heighten public awareness of and interest in the language and folk culture of the Seychelles. In other words, highlighting, fighting historical inequality through highlighting local uniqueness. At least that's one way of putting it which is very close to and mutually intelligible with Creole Mauritien, Mauritian Creole, but not with other French lexicon Creoles. Huh? They are very different. Even the Creole spoken in La Réunion is sufficiently differ- different not to be readily intelligible. Uh, it exists in a triglossic situation with French and English. While French has been losing ground steadily in the last decades, English is becoming ever more dominant in the public sphere. The Seychellois press is in principle trilingual, but increasingly anglophone in practice. While French is perceived as the language of poetry and high culture, and English is the language of business and popular mass culture, Creole is mainly oral, the language of everyday interaction, but also of oral literature, including proverbs and lyrics to the popular musical form of mutya. Um, the hierarchy is nevertheless evident. Creole, the vernacular developed during slavery, being the poor country cousin of the glitzy metropolitan languages. So, as a marker of social hierarchy, but also of local cultural specificity, keol can be seen as a key symbol, almost a total social fact in the morsean sense, in the way that it encapsulates the scales and forms of belonging and identity expressed in different spheres of Seychellois society. The director of the uh, International Creole Institute, Penda Chope, explained to me that there has been a marked shift in the public attitude to and political support for Creole, and the locally specific, historically as it were anchored, life worlds it evokes and reproduces a marked decrease in that support. Carrying out research on Seychellois identity from a post-colonial perspective, Chopley argues that the enduring legacies of slavery are powerful, but neglected in contemporary Seychelles, which is thereby incapable of coming to terms with its most unfortunate effects. Um, in one of several bids to expand the scope of Creole and to overcome or mitigate the hierarchical outcomes of Triglossia, the Institute has recently published a dictionary of business Creole. Right, because English is the language of business, right? Now, why don't we carry out business in Creole? Here's the a, here's a vocabulary. Just read the book and then you can do it. Um, while addressing inequality, both domestically and globally, by championing the course of Creole, the Institute is also aware of the ways in which Creole expresses uniqueness and cultural specificity. For example, they have produced a comprehensive catalogue of Zedmo, wordplay, Zedmo, right, Zedmo, uh, which express the specificity of the worlds of experience typical of slavery and post-slavery society. A kind of cultural memory, which I'm stressing, is about to be lost um, in the current era of consumerism. A typical Zedmo of the riddle kind might go like this. Moana Mo mo la case, y en un compte, I have my house, it has many stories. And the answer is can, sugarcane, right? a house with several floors. Another typical Zedmo would be a riddle, hanging water. And the solution is coco, coconut. Right? Um, so, um, in other words, anchored in local experience, the worlds of local experience. Now, probably going back to slavery, many of these Zedmo. The work of simultaneously producing social equality and cultural difference through the idiom of Creole is currently, as I've already explained, an uphill battle. Translated works and other publications languish on dusty shelves in a back room. The Ministry of Tourism and Culture has designs on the Institute's building, which is a lovely colonial mansion, wishing to turn the Research Institute into a tourist attraction with a cafe and perhaps an historical exhibition. There are growing doubts about the continued relevance of Creole in the population, where many see the language as an impediment to successful lives. So influential politicians argue against its use in schools and popular radio channels now broadcast mainly in English. Although it should be conceded that, in fact, TV news, unlike in Mauritius, TV news is still in Creole, in the Seychelles. OK. In spite of the backlash against Creole in the neoliberal era, which has replaced the reflu- revolutionary period, the Seychellois government has funded, almost inexplicably, the production of a Creole dictionary, which is currently being developed under the leadership of the Creole Institute. So the work of the National Committee of the Creole Language, Comité National de la Langue Creole, consists not only in deciding on word definitions, but also deciding which words rightfully belong to the Creole language. Because since the Creole language, just like the social category of Creoles, is open-ended and flexible, uh, its trilingual speakers pepper the discourse with words and expressions from French and English. So it's hard to tell, just that it's hard to tell where does the Creole identity start and stop, where does the Creole language end and where does English or French begin. There is no simple answer to this. But this committee has has this mandate to decide these boundaries. Um, Okay, I will move quickly on now because I realise that I'm transgressing the... the, um, um, uh, the time that I've been given. Um, but I have to tell you these stories towards the end because I'm trying to bring together these questions to do with the queer dilemmas in the early 21st century and the issues of, on the one hand, difference, being different, having your own, as it were, local identity, being cultural different, and doing something about questions to do with inequality. OK, so earlier this year, in fact, just a couple of months ago, I took part in some meetings where, where the committee discussed definitions. Seated around a large table at the institute, 12 women and 2 men in all ages were patiently labouring through some of the trickier terms in the dictionary. There was no speaking order and no voting, but a completely open discussion. Well, anybody who had anything on, the, on their mind could just speak up. And, and Penda the director of the institute, sort of skillfully guided uh, the people through the discussion, eventually leading to a conclusion. Some of the participants were actively consulting their Collins or their Larousse to check how certain issues were dealt with in the metropolitan languages. A few also looked up words in the recent Dictionnaire mauricien, a dictionary of Mauritian Creole, but uh, people spoke rather dismissively of the Mauritian dictionary, claiming that its definitions were often simplistic and unsatisfactory. So we have to do better. We are going to do better. Just like in Norway, we always have to do better than the Swedes. (laughs) And the Seychellois feel that you have to beat the Mauritians. We have to make a better dictionary. Seychellois Creole has just 90,000 speakers and has barely been used in academia, literature and business. So the new dictionary will not only have to freeze and standardise definitions, which have tended to be fluid and contextual, but it also has to expand on existing definitions and propose definitions for words which have hitherto not been widely used. An example of the first kind is l'art, art. art. The first part of the definition refers to the creative arts. That's fine. However, one of the committee members pointed out during the meeting that the arts have a wider meaning in English, encompassing non-scientific branches of knowledge, a synonym to the humanities. Although this usage is not common in French, not current in French, it was accepted by the committee. With the next uh, entry on the list of problem words, l'arac, an opposite conclusion was swiftly reached. Although Arak has a specific meaning in both English and French, I mean, it's an aniseed-flavoured spirit from the Middle East, it has a wider meaning in Peru. and so the definition, "boisson alcoholisé, alcoholic drink, was soon agreed upon. The next word, rap coco, raised a different challenge, since it, is, since it is embedded in local life worlds and does not appear in the metropolitan dictionaries. rap coco, the definition was eventually agreed upon, explaining that the rap coco is a small, flat piece of perforated metal attached to a band or a wooden handle made for the purpose of grating coconut. Okay? La race. race. I was waiting for that, you know, I was sitting in the. (laughs) waiting for the discussion around the word race. And I have to say I was slightly disappointed because it wasn't much of a discussion. They spent far longer talking about LAR and and, LARAP. So, uh, anyway, uh, fairly little uh, discussion. The definitions distinguish between human races, races in plants and animals, and cultural or ethnic groups. Um, And as an observer, I couldn't speak up, you know, I just had to sit and take notes. Uh, The latter definition. Of ethnic, cultural, and ethnic groups reads group de qui partage même qu'ils l'histoire, la langue et descendance. Human group which shares the same culture, history, language and origin. And in fact, as I said, I mean the group spent longer discussing the best definition of la and the next word, la Harassment uh, than they did on race. In the case of harassment, harassment, the moot point concerned whether this word actually existed in Creole. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a long discussion. I mean, yeah, I've heard it, but it was sort of, I mean, it's sort of a French word, isn't it? So maybe we shouldn't include it in the Creole dictionary. In the end, they did include it. So they invented it. A final approach a final approach to this attempt to standardise, as it were, uh, this fluid uh, oral uh, language uh, is represented in the deliberations around the meaning of la vie, the tree of life. The discussion concerned what the true meaning was of the tree of life. Not any local meaning that it might have. Because it probably didn't have a local meaning. It seemed for a long time. But then one of the elder women spoke up towards the end of the long discussion about, around the Lave de vie and biblical references and, and so on and whether Shakespeare you know, speaks of it and in the end one of the elder the president, spoke up and said that yes, this term has a very specific local meaning and it refers to a rare species of tree which only grows in some parts of the Seychelles which are called larve de vie and she remembers it from her childhood etc. So that was also had to be included in the definition. Okay, I now conclude. The collective work on this dictionary encapsulates main features of the situatedness of Creole in the contemporary world and in the Seychelles. The codification and standardisation of Creole is a feature of nation-building and large-scale modernity of the the, the kind that is familiar from, from other parts of the world, but it also addresses issues to do with inequality in the Seychelles, which is correlated with language proficiency. The variable reliance on French and English definitions is a reminder that old colonial structures remain influential, And the production of definitions for new words and the invention of new words whenever needed signifies social change as well as the inherent openness and creativity of Creole. There is a distinct lack of enthusiasm for the committee's work in the political sphere, the media sphere and wider society. Most Seychellois are not aware that anybody is at work making a dictionary in Creole. The cultural radicalism of the first decade and a half of independence has been replaced by a more utilitarian view of language, a more pragmatic view of cultural identity, and a keen interest in the cultural worlds made visible through electronic communication and the tourism sector. The kind of dependency which is now experienced in the Seychelles is not that of colonialism or the logic of the plantation, nor of the post-colonial hangover of double consciousness, but rather it represents a different form of neo-colonialism, independent or largely independent, not entirely independent, but largely independent of the old colonial powers, uh, but driven by global neoliberalism and disseminated by tourists via the internet and through the transnational anglophone medium that everybody in the Seychelles relates to. In this context, a minor detail that may deserve mentioning at the end is that when, you know, during one of those meetings, which we dragged on, we went on and on and on and on when we discussed the, the definitions. During one of those meetings, a mobile phone rang, And the ringtone was neither Butia, Sega from Mauritius, or reggae from Jamaica, but it was a guitar riff from a Bon Jovi hit song, okay? Uh, And that struck me as uh, saying something more than just the fact that it was a guitar riff. Okay, so on that note, thank you very much for your attention, and I apologize for having gone on for too long.